Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Connecting Care, a multidisciplinary panel discussion on the use of neutralizing monoclonal antibodies in ambulatory patients with COVID-19, is provided by Forefront Collaborative and AKH, and supported by an educational grant from Lilly. This replay of a live broadcast focuses on how we can overcome challenges in the treatment of COVID-19. Since the presentation recording, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, ASPR, paused all distribution of bamlanivimab and edisivimab, and edisivimab alone, to pair with existing bamlanivimab supply. Two additional changes of note, dosing of casarivimab and imdevimab decreased to 600 milligrams of each compound. EUA criterion pertaining to BMI was reduced to 25. Now, here's your moderator, Dr. Mimi Secor. Hi, I'm Dr. Mimi Secor, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Karen Block and Mr. Jared Kyle to the program. They are joining me to discuss the use of neutralizing monoclonal antibodies in the outpatient treatment of patients with COVID-19. Welcome to the program, Dr. Block and Mr. Kyle. Happy to be here. Thank you. Please note, our disclosures are available to you on the event page and are also listed on this slide. During this activity, you will have the opportunity to hear from our multidisciplinary panel as they share clinical information on the new neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, as well as real-world experiences from their own institutions. You will also have an opportunity to have your questions answered live during a Q&A session at the end of the lecture. You'll have the chance to claim credit for completing an evaluate after completing an evaluation uh, after participating in the course. To submit questions during the presentation, type them into the chat control panel on the left side throughout the program or in your comment box through Facebook Live. We will answer as many as we can in the time allotted. We also have three polling questions placed throughout the presentation, so please take out your phone and text REACHMD to the phone number 22333. Alternatively, you can respond via your computer at poll ev.com. Um, enter ReachMD. So, Dr. Block, all the attention in the past few months has been on the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, lost in the excitement, it seems, are the outpatient treatments uh, that have received emergency use authorization, uh, the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. I'd like to start with a really basic question. What is a neutralizing monoclonal antibody? That is an important question. Um, can we get the next slide, please? So a neutralizing monoclonal antibody is a protein that's synthesized in the lab. And this is shown pictorially on this slide. The um, virus is shown in the center with the red um, components emanating from the circular um, aspect of it, representing spike proteins. Monoclonal antibodies are derived from um, human um, antibodies that are naturally made against infection. And these work specifically by binding to different epitopes on these spike protein um, areas. In natural infection, the virus is able to get into the human cell by using these spike uh, proteins to bind to a cell surface receptor, specifically the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor. Once inside the cell, the virus replicates and ultimately destroys or kills the cell. If you look at slide B here, though, once the antibodies are in place, physically, the virus is no longer able to attach to this uh, ACE2, uh, ACE2 uh, receptor. And so it uh, is not uh, uh, cytotoxic to the host cell. Currently, there are three neutralizing monoclonal antibodies available, all of which have emergency use authorization through the FDA. The first of these, BAM-lanivimab, was authorized for use in November 9th. And shortly thereafter, a combination product or cocktail of two different monoclonal antibodies, both of which are active against different portions of the spike protein, was um, approved. This is kesarimavab and imdimavab. Finally, a second combination um, was just authorized in the last two weeks. This takes the initial protein that we talked about, bamlanivimab, and adds a second um, uh, antibody that's also active against a different area on the spike protein. Dr. Block, since the FDA has granted emergency authorization 
to the three neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapies as shown in the slide here and as you've discussed. How do you explain that to patients? That's a, that's a great question. So it does cause a lot of confusion because there are so many options out there. What I tell patients is that they have not been studied head to head. So there's not really one that's better than the others, or at least we don't know that there's one that's better than the others. And in the studies I'll talk about, you can see all of them work very similarly in terms of uh, beneficial effects. The other thing to keep in mind is we don't really have much of a choice in terms of which product we give our patients. Uh, at our institution, we are allocated uh, an allotment of uh, antibodies from the state health department, and it may vary week to week which product we are given. And so our pharmacy decides independent of the clinicians uh, which product we have the most supply of, and that's the one that's used for that week. So shortly after uh, the first monoclonal antibody was given uh, emergency use authorization, a number of expert panels came out with guidelines for their use. The National Institute of Health um, guidelines suggest that there's insufficient data to recommend either for or against the use of these products. The Infectious Disease Society of America recommends against the routine use in ambulatory patients. However, they do acknowledge that in patients who are at high risk, it's reasonable to consider this as a treatment option, understanding that we don't know as much about this as we would about a drug that's gone through years and years of development and testing. In late January, the pediatric ID group came out with a consensus statement recommending against the routine use of this product in children and adolescents. And that's based on a couple of different uh, rationales. The first is uh, the studies that led to uh, approval of these different agents were not done in children. So we really don't have a lot of data in terms of their efficacy or their safety in this population. And that's balanced against the fact that in children, for most of the cases, uh, COVID-19 is a mild disease. So for the polling questions, please text REACHMD to the phone number 22333. Alternatively, you can respond via your computer at pollev.com and enter ReachMD. Which of the following statements regarding neutralizing monoclonal antibodies for treating COVID-19 best apply to your practice? Is it A, have prescribed the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, B, have administered neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, C, never utilize the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, or D, plan to utilize neutralizing monoclonal antibodies in the treatment of COVID-19? So we'll give everybody a few seconds and encourage you to submit your responses to the polling question. And then we'll have Mr. Kyle discuss your responses. So it definitely seems like the high number of the people on, on tonight are looking into it or haven't used it and are a little more interested. And nothing seems to be changing. Excellent. So hopefully at the end of this, um, this discussion, um, we'll see a, a clear um, increase in the number planning to use these products. This outlines which clinical studies were done um, that led to the FDA granting uh, emergency use authorization. Um, two of these were in New England Journal, and the most recent one came out in JAMA. Um, and these were all randomized controlled trials, with the primary endpoint being viral load uh, in the nasopharynx at 11 days after um, therapy. Before I get to um, the question about viral load, I did want to mention one thing because this is something that patients routinely ask me about when we um, bring up the, the potential for a, a monoclonal antibody treatment. And that is, will I feel better with this therapy? And the answer is maybe. And this is based on the data from the BAM-Lenivimab study. This was a phase two trial. Patients who received placebo are shown in the gray line and those who received therapy in the blue line. These investigators used a composite score for um, symptoms. And so this is eight different uh, variables sort of um, uh, accumulated into a single score. And you can see by day three or four, there really is a bit of a uh, difference with a decrease in number of symptoms in patients who'd received therapy. But by day six, these curves start to merge again. So it is likely that there is some symptomatic benefit. Um, certainly anecdotally, I've had patients tell me that they feel remarkably better very quickly after the infusion, um, but it is somewhat limited. This is data um, from the fact sheet that accompanied the EUA for BAM-Lenivimab. Again, I mentioned that the uh, primary outcome for the studies that led to um, approval was uh, viral load. And if you look at that first graph, you can see there are a number of different dosages that were used. And, and for some of these, there was a significant decrease um, from the uh, viral load with placebo, which is shown again in the gray line. However, I think the take-home message is, regardless of whether patients got uh, treatment with a monoclonal antibody or with placebo, over that 11-day period, the number of viral um, 
particles drops off quite considerably. I think the most clinically relevant um, finding from the, this study, and one that, uh, again, I think led to the uh, emergency use authorization, is shown on the next two uh, bar slides or bar graphs. When they looked at the uh, total population studied, um, the patients who received placebo, 6% required either hospitalization or emergency room visit in the 28 days after infusion. For those who received the study project, that number decreased to 2%. In a post hoc analysis, these investigators looked just at high risk patients, and the findings were even more dramatic. 10% of those who received placebo required hospitalization or emergency room evaluation compared to only 3% who received um, the monoclonal product. Dr. Block, seeing this data is so important to understanding monoclonal antibody therapy. However, can you translate for us, what do these, these data mean for you when you're actually seeing a patient? So, you know, I think that's, that's um, really a key question. Um, as I said, most patients initially ask, am I gonna feel better? But when they hear that um, the real uh, benefit of this treatment is that um, they will have less of your disease and will be less likely to go into the hospital, I think that's a really compelling um, reason for many patients to wanna proceed with this therapy. So I think the most important finding from the study is that there is a decreased rate of hospitalization. This shows very similar data um, compared to the previous slide. This is for the combination product, Kesarivimab and Imdevimab. Um, again, primary um, uh, outcome was viral load. And uh, while there was a statistically significant decrease with any of the doses of this combination um, treatment, the placebo um, also had a sharp drop off in terms of viral load as well. So getting to our more clinically meaningful um, variables, uh, the middle slide shows all comers in this study, and we saw similar to the other um, uh, study with bamlanivimab, 4% of placebo recipients had to be hospitalized or go to the ER versus 2%, so a 50% drop. And even more impressive when it was restricted to these high-risk individuals where placebo um, uh, the placebo group, 9% were hospitalized versus 3% for those that received cocktail treatment. Dr. Block, do we know if these monoclonal antibodies uh, work well with the UK, Brazil, or South African variants? That's a question I'm getting a lot. So uh, it seems to be on everybody's mind. Um, we don't know directly, um, but there is some indirect data that suggests um, that when um, the virus mutates, it changes specific components of these spike proteins. And so a mutation in one area might prohibit or not allow binding of the antibody to that uh, mutated site. But if there are two different antibodies in the cocktail, chances are really good that the second one um, would still be very active. So I, I think as we see more and more of these mutations, um, I think that there may be a, a interest in developing products that have um, multiple antibodies in the uh, infusion. So far, I've talked a lot about what the rationale for the um, emergency use authorization is, and now I want to talk specifically about what the criteria for emergency use of these agents is. There are a number of clinical factors, and they're really well laid out uh, in the uh, um, supporting documentation from these EUAs. Patients need to have a positive test, um, either a PCR or an antigen test. They need to not be hospitalized with mild to moderate COVID-19. Patients need to receive the infusion within 10 days of symptom onset. And I will say that that's the trickiest part um, in terms of logistics of giving these infusions because patients often won't present for testing until several days into their illness. And it may be another day or two for that positive test to return. And so that leaves a really short window um, for the infusion center to contact, the, to identify the patient first of all, then contact the patient, schedule them and actually give the infusion. So that 10 days really is, is a, is a uh, uh, clicking talk. Clicking, um, ticking clock. Ticking time of, bomb. Yeah, tick, clicking time bomb. You're exactly right. So we need to be um, very cognizant of that. Although um, the studies were not done in pediatric population, there is approval for use in um, children 12 years and older as long as they weigh 40 kilograms or more. And finally, a criteria for giving these agents is that patients need to be at high risk for progressing to severe COVID-19 and or hospitalization. So what constitutes high risk? Patients with a body mass index of 35 or greater would be in that category. 
patients with chronic kidney disease. And that's not defined in the EUA. Our institution decided that stage four or five met that uh, threshold. So anybody with a GFR of 30 or under would be uh, included as eligible. Patients with diabetes mellitus who are on medication. Patients who are immunocompromised, uh, either because of an underlying health condition or a treatment. And then there's some age criteria. Anybody 65 years of age or older, independent of these other risk factors, would be a candidate for infusion. And those 55 to 64 who have one of the following would also be eligible. That would be cardiovascular disease, hypertension, or chronic pulmonary disease. The criteria for pediatrics is slightly different. There is a weight criteria as well, but rather than an absolute cutoff, it's a percentile based on age and gender. Other unique immunocompromising conditions uh, in children would include sickle cell disease, which might lead to functional asplenia. Children with congenital or acquired cardiac disease are considered high risk, as are those with neurodevelopmental disorders. And that could be things like cerebral palsy or uh, muscular dystrophy. Children who have medically related technological devices, maybe a feeding tube or a tracheostomy, would fall into a high risk category. And finally, children with chronic respiratory disease, including asthma requiring daily medication, would be eligible. Dr. Block, are there data to support using monoclonal antibody therapy in hospitalized patients that do not yet meet the criteria for treatment with remdesivir or other treatments? So the uh, emergency use authorization did not specify that, and it wasn't included in any of the studies that led to um, authorization. But just um, sort of rationalizing it, the same risk factors would be present in a patient who might be hospitalized for reasons unrelated to COVID. So, for instance, our hospital does screening uh, at admission, and a number of patients who come in for completely unrelated reasons are found um, incidentally to have COVID. This is a population that we felt would benefit from these treatments, and um, so we actually have extended our eligibility to patients hospitalized so long as the reason for hospitalization is not COVID itself. There are some contraindications, so let me tell you what those are. These are very clearly laid out in the EUA um, documentation. That would be hospitalization due to COVID, so sort of a subtle difference from what I talked about before, um, but if, if patients are hospitalized because of severe disease, that would be a reason not to give these therapies. And then regardless of inpatient or outpatient status, um, patients who have either a new need for oxygen or increase in oxygen flow rate um, from their chronic baseline uh, oxygen requirements. Now, a question that comes up a lot is, are women who are pregnant or breastfeeding uh, eligible? And these are not contraindications, but these may be scenarios where talking to the patient about risks and benefits and individualizing uh, therapy uh, would probably be uh, indicated. This shows data from the ACTIVE-3 study. This was a um, treatment that looked at uh, monoclonal antibody, specifically Bamlin and Vimab, combined with um, remdesivir or placebo with remdesivir in hospitalized patients. If you look at the bar chart, the uh, red um, uh, areas show better pulmonary outcomes. And you can look at each of these different um, uh, data points and the monoclonal antibody performs um, either uh, equally or less well than those who received placebo. And based on an interim analysis of this data, the study was stopped prematurely for medical futility. And so this sort of supports the reason why this is not indicated in hospitalized patients. For those just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Mimi Secor, and joining me to talk about neutralizing monoclonal antibody treatment for outpatient COVID-19 are Dr. Block and Mr. Kyle. I wanna encourage our viewers to submit questions for them. Also, there are two more polling questions. So please take out your phone and text ReachMD to the number 22333 to set your phone up for polling. Mr. Kyle will now speak to us from a pharmacist perspective. Uh, Mr. Kyle, uh, what should our listening clinicians expect when administering and neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy? Thanks, Dr. Secor. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so we will discuss a little more about the demographics of the experience where we have at Lehigh Valley Health Network um, in a future slide. But I wanted to give a quick overview, like if I'd say the thousand foot view on this particular slide. And this entails about 250 patients um, that we pulled together and some data from around uh, late January. Um, from the infusions, we have seen mostly mild side effects, which really follows with the EUAs of all the different products that are out there. 
Um, and I would say that also that when we did follow-ups, which I think is a, an extremely important part of it, again, that's part of the EUA, but I think it's a really extremely part that uh, we have to consider doing um, in a, a timely manner, uh, we did find that there were patients had mild to moderate ADRs um, post-infusion, uh, whether it was nausea and vomiting for a few days, headaches, um, and there's some other, other varying different side effects. We were finding that it, it would last sometimes up to a few days. Now, one thing to also note, though, too, is we had not seen any patient um, so far, and we're well beyond that 250 mark, uh, but we, uh, we've not seen anybody that's had anaphylaxis yet. Then you take the group and, again, look for that 1,000-foot view. Uh, we have had six patients that have gone back to the ED um, following infusions, again, not necessarily due to the, you know, the monoclonal antibody. Uh, we had 13 uh, COVID-related hospital admissions. And again, this is always difficult to say, is this, you know, do we get the antibody in in the right amount of time? Is this the progression of the COVID? It's always a good question. And one something else that's a little bit more passive when it comes to data collection, you know, something I really never knew before is, um, you know, how does an EMR actually get updated, unfortunately, when someone passes? Um, but we had five patients that had gotten the infusions um, that ended up passing away. And really looking at those patients, we noticed it was not, you know, in instantaneously. It wasn't within like even 24 hours. It was really within a week or two. So it's probably more related, again, can't say totally 100%, but probably more related to the COVID disease state more than anything else. So one of the things that's really important, though, is, and you know, this is, I think, something that pharmacists are, are uniquely, um, it's one of our, I'd say our passions is one of the things that we're really taught in college and just from experience, is looking at patients that might have an ADR and knowing how to do, you know, follow up with those patients and that. I think there's two ways to really look at this. And one is doing a, a passive approach, and there's doing one that's more of an active approach. Um, again, passive approach, is, you can say it's a little bit more easier, um, where you just get a phone number or an email address. Um, we've done some of, of a hybrid. You know, we started off because um, we, we had uh, some availability of providers and from nursing staff. So we really want to get understand a little bit more about these um, drugs compared to just the EUAs. So we actually were doing some televisits and some phone visits. But as it's gotten more busy um, and learning a little bit more about what the side effects profile might be and finding out that they are relatively safe products, uh, we've actually tried testing out doing patient portal reminders. So we use um, our my LVHN and we actually send out some, a little bit of a questionnaire. And then our team will actually be able to review them. We're finding that, you know, that's giving us a pretty good understanding of the side effects as well in that five to seven day range. Again, you can always do a, you know, a mix of the two, and it really depends you know, on what is um, available at your institution. Um, it's anything related to this, as I'm sure Dr. Block can uh, attest to, it's very labor intensive and very resource intensive. Again, this is not something that's intuitive, I'd say, to a network, because now we're doing something sort of flipping and it's on its head. We're worrying about something outpatient, but sort of decrease the progression to inpatient. Um, but again, I really feel that pharmacists are something that you can be utilized in, in this area. So now we get to the second polling question. And as a reminder, uh, you can either text ReachMD to 22333, um, or you can respond on your computer um, by entering pollev.com and then entering ReachMD. So this question, which of the following COVID-positive patients would not be appropriate for administration of a neutralizing monoclonal antibody? Patient A, who's in the emergency department with chronic kidney disease on room air, Patient B, who's in an infusion center uh, receiving chemotherapy, who is on chronic oxygen but with no change in their requirement. Patient C, who's uh, in a nursing home and has stable COPD uh, on room air. Or patient D, who's in the intensive care unit on a ventilator receiving ECMO. Looks like we have a pretty smart group here. Yeah, yeah fast. They're fast. For They're fast and really smart. <laughs> So we'll give you a few more seconds to answer, but it looks like you're you're doing a great job. And then Dr. Block will talk with you about what um, is the most appropriate answer. So 86% uh, chose option D, and that is correct. It's yay. a little tricky. Uh, yay, yay, guys. Uh, it's a little tricky because we don't give ages, and, and I did mention that age was a cutoff, but the one um, contraindication to giving these treatments is in critically ill patients hospitalized because, again, there's some preliminary data that suggests perhaps the outcome is worse in this population. Yeah, and then to really realize when you, we delve into it, too, is we always think of certain walls for infusions, and those, that doesn't really have to be the case. You know, it could be done in a nursing home. It could be done in a prison. It could be done I mean, in various places, even going out to 
certain centers if necessary. As long as you meet the EUA and you feel comfortable and have the right um, ability to handle something like anaphylaxis, if unfortunately would happen. Mm -hmm. Mr. Kyle, we're learning about neutralizing monoclonal antibodies and what to expect when administering them. How do you choose which patients to give give it to? Yeah, great question. Next slide. So this is a quick example um, from earlier on. Now, we've, we've taken two modalities, and Dr. Block will get a little bit more specific in relation to uh, like an EMR type of setup. But I wanted to explain a little bit about the state difference and uh, even the allocation difference. So, you know, in Pennsylvania, when they were first rolling this out, um, allocations were not for sure. We didn't know exactly what we were going to get. So we really took the EUA um, and broke it down, the multidisciplinary group, and made tier levels. And we, at first, we didn't because we didn't know how much we were getting. It was really based off of, you know, how many patients were admitted, how many patients um, were in the ICU intubated, um, how many positive tests we're having. Um, we made these tier levels, and that's really how we decided what, what, how we're going to move forward. Um, and then this example of paper, um, which we'll explain a little bit more further, uh, further on, is we also want to get a bigger catchment area. Um, it's really important uh, to be equitable as much as we can, and that was really something important to us. Then one on the, on the right side is sort of the, the version 2.0, and now we found that, you know, what ended up happening for us in Pennsylvania as the state um, had to start taking over the COVID vaccination um, they realized that, you know, networks were getting pretty good at handling the, the monoclonal antibodies. So they gave that back to the distributor, and we could pretty much order, you know, what we felt necessary. Now, for us, uh, we always were getting larger shipments of bamlanivimab. Um, so we stuck with that because we didn't want to have a more adverse events, um, jumping between different, you know, products. Um, so the, ne the next version, as you can see, there's a little bit more cleaned up. Um, and that's also because we were getting a lot of, this, uh, a lot of input from um, outside facilities, nursing facilities, and even some prisons saying, well, we need something simple we can work with um, to help you help have you help us in giving this to, uh, product to patients. Dr. Block, um, how did your institution look at this? So, yeah, we, um, we go to the next slide, please. Um, we struggled a little bit at the beginning with knowing how to best um, identify patients who are eligible for this treatment. And what we started out with was using our electronic medical record, which in our case is EPIC, uh, and having our IT group build us a report. And I have a prototype shown here. What this does is it teases out our data mines um, for all the patients who were outpatient, um, who are symptomatic, and who had a positive SARS-CoV-2 PCR test. And we asked them to also include specific variables from the medical record. So of course, identifying these patients is only as good as the medical record documentation. Um, but this really helped in that we didn't have to go through every single chart of every patient. So I think this was a huge time saver. But we recognized fairly early into the course of setting up our infusion center that just using the EMR and actively reaching out to patients was going to miss some populations. As a tertiary care center, we have a lot of patients who come receive their very specialized care at Vanderbilt, but may live in a community um, several hundred miles away. And so they would get their testing locally, and if um, we were using our, our EMR uh, mechanism to identify them, would miss this group. So we also... Uh, encourage providers to uh, refer patients um, that they know of who have a positive test outside of the, the Vanderbilt system. Um, and that is a uh, second way that we um, uh, identify patients. Um, the third way, which we have tried to discourage, although we certainly have um, enrolled some patients through this route, is self-referral. And I think that's challenging on a couple different uh, levels because often these patients don't have a very robust uh, medical record, so it's hard to determine if they meet those high-risk characteristics. But the other thing that's challenging in this group is if they don't meet um, some of the variables that make them high-risk, there's sometimes a little tension in terms of them wanting a treatment that may not be available. And we came up with having a... Um, appeals process where we have a uh, separate group that looks at these um, case by case and decides if it's uh, a reasonable um, uh, therapy and if they meet um, the EUA criteria. Mr. Kyle, what did you do at your institution? Has that been an issue there? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It, you know, geographically and probably demographically a little bit different, but we sort of came to some of the same conclusions on how we handle it. And you know, we had a core group that started this and as things grew, it, it expanded. Um, as I'll get to a little bit further on. Um, but the same thing is if, if there's a major issue, the group, the core group that had the most experience, it goes back to that group. And um, 
you know, for better or for worse, we have something called, you know, for HIPAA, tiger texting. It's, you know, the, the text messaging um, that we use in our network and you're available 24 seven, whether you want to like it or not. But, you know, we learned a lot because of that and everyone was on the group and um, we get a lot of different mindsets and a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds. Um, so it's been very beneficial and really rewarding at the same time. Mr. Kyle, I'd like to get your perspective on the use of neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. How can individual clinicians, many of whom are in primary care settings, find where orders of monoclonal antibodies can be written and are available? Yeah, it can be daunting. I, I think Dr. Block probably can you know, attest to the same thing as she sort of said before, that you know, our network, we have one major you know, hub of an 800-bed um, level one trauma center, and we have a few other different hospitals within the network that are the more community um, and get into more of the, you'd say the rural uh, areas, um, even over an hour, you know, a little over an hour away. So, you know, what do you do? You know, so one of the things is you know, we have, um, you know, we've really reached out as much as we can with different meetings. Um, of course, email, which some people read, some people don't. Most of them don't get to it. Uh, well, the other thing we've ended up doing and I've really been pushing is, you know, again, my main job is stewardship, which this is a big of stewardship now. Um, but we got the Sanford guy with stewardship assistant. And one of the reasons I wanted that is um, it's editable. So we actually have our, our COVID guidelines on that um, as an app version. So instantaneously, if I update it, it updates that. So this gave providers instant knowledge of any changes that we were doing as part of our COVID steering committee. Um, and that's really, that's, you know, that's really done well, you know, people, especially the steward generation, they love things that can put in their pocket. Um, the other way you can get it too, you say for us a little bit more senior and older crowd, um, is the HHS website, which a lot of people don't realize they have a list of all the different places that receive these monoclonal antibodies. And I'd probably say the easiest way to find that is actually the Google combat COVID antibody, um, comes right back, comes right up. You type in your, um, your zip code, and it'll tell you what, what's local. Um, now, it will not, unfortunately, though, say like where might be all the different little spots within a network, but at least gives you a really good starting point. Um, but like anything else, it's just a lot of um, person-to-person communication, you know, meetings, um, just getting the word out as much as you can. For those just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Mimi Secor, and joining me to talk about neutralizing monoclonal antibody treatment for outpatient COVID-19 are Dr. Block and Mr. Kyle. I wanna encourage our viewers to submit questions for them by either typing them into the chat control panel on the left side throughout this program or in the comment box in Facebook Live. We also have three polling questions placed throughout the presentation. So please take out your phone and text ReachMD to the telephone number 22333. Uh, Mr. Kyle? Uh, what does the neutralizing monoclonal antibody program look like at your facility? What surprised you the most? What barriers have you faced and how have you overcome them? And I know you've mentioned a bit about this already. Yeah. I'm going to actually go to the second one real quick, though. What surprised me the most? And it's just how engaged the public was. You know, I put a key message here, you have to engage the public. You know, they are very tech savvy. Even our 78-year-olds, you know, with text messaging and such. And or you're reading the news, you know, as soon as something's out there, especially with COVID, people are really on it. They're really trying to understand what's going on. Even they can say with their, their normal um, uh, disease states and, and, and such. Um, engaging the providers, again, is a little bit more work because, you know, we're very busy trying to get the, how do you streamline the information they really need and connect them up. But really understand that you're going to need resources for this. Um, so this is kind of partially come from the top down. They need to understand that you can't just throw this out there and get it done. This is not necessarily, I'd say, intuitive um, in a grand sense because now we're taking something that we're trying to decrease someone being admitted. It's an infusion. You have to follow to the letter of the law, um, which we'll explain a little bit more in one of my next slides. So it takes a little bit of work, um, and it's very labor-intensive and getting up and running. And another thing that's really important, too, is you don't want to forget to review the data once you do get things started up. You know, how can you make it better? You know, when we talk about equitability, uh, Dr. Block, and I, I think it's important. You know, what's your group served? And, you know, how does that come to play of who's been infected and who's getting infected? Um, you know, the time to positivity until um, the infusion. You know, we talked about that, too. You know, the closer you can get to it is usually when you get the better feedback saying, you know, I felt great the next day. 
Um, and then just making sure per the EUA, and again, you know, putting in the, the note there for us pharmacists, you know, we're great for that thing of doing the follow-up between five to seven days. And again, if it gets really busy, maybe pushing it out a little bit and looking at and how you're going to do that. And then looking at admissions, looking at deaths, looking at ADRs, and just taking a, a you know, a, a pause, look at what's been done and say, hey, how can I do this better? So when you talk about therapy, you know, specific, um, and again, you can say this is geared towards pharmacists, but I don't think so, not necessarily. You know, we've used bamlanivimab, again, because that's been the general practice of what we've had availability of. And partially to what Dr. Block was discussing, um, you know, sometimes you have to move between products a little bit. We've been fortunate we don't have to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of happy about that because that's always when you have the chances of having errors made. Um, one thing to note with bamlanivimab, again, it was usually, it's usually been an hour infusion of 250 mLs. They more recently updated that, and now it's you know 50 mLs over 16 minutes now, or up to I should say it can be up to 50 mLs over 16 minutes, and that was done in, in a 30 people. We made the decision not to do that. Um, we just felt there's more chances for side effects. Um, we just wanted to take a step back and just you know keep up with what we're doing. And another thing to note is like what kind of infusion sets are there? You know, and there's a filter that has to specifically go with it, making sure you have the product you need. Um, with that, you know, are you going to be using a pump or are you going to be using actually, there's something called a dial flow tubing. So you don't even need to use a pump and depending on where you're doing it, which is always important, you have to consider that. And we're fortunate with the bamlanivimab, at least right now, the single product. Now with the combination product, as Dr. Block had discussed, that's going to put a little bit of monkey wrench in it. So we're going to have to go back to the drawing board a little bit, but we could actually do something like a Viomate adapter, which basically means you connect the bag up and you could have it stocked somewhere, so it decreases the amount of time from pharmacy to getting to the nurse on the, on the unit. And just taking in that timing and that prep time. So, you know, prep time at a bigger institution, you know, the level one trauma center, and we were fortunate, and again, we have a newer ED, but it, it's a little bit of a distance from the pharmacy. And these are not the products I can throw in my tube station and zip around. Um, so it takes sometimes an hour, you know, realistically, thinking of things that are going on, an hour and a half. Um, it's an hour infusion. We decided to keep it at that. And then you have to have that hour monitoring time. So for us, we always do block scheduling of four hours per patient, just to be cautious. So, and Dr. Block, what have you guys seen at your institution? How has it been sort of the same and different? So it's very similar. Um, you know, one thing um, from the clinical end that um, perhaps I didn't realize that it has added some time onto our infusions is based on the population that is eligible, these folks often have um, multiple uh, phlebotomies and their veins are challenging. And so we have really employed our um, IV therapy team um, and they have been phenomenal at finding access. But that's another thing we didn't anticipate that slowed down uh, these infusion times. Yeah, really important. Next slide, please. And this is an example, again, you know, we wanted to make things as equitable possible, but we also don't want to set ourselves up for failure. Um, so we know we're fortunate, you know, we're a bigger institution. We do have, you can say, quite a few resources, but even for that, us, this was difficult. You know, and I have to give a shout out to all of us, um, everybody that works in healthcare and arts. It's, it's, it's tough, you know, especially on our nursing staff and our, you know, everyone that's on the bedside. So now we have to find something else to find to be able to man. So we decided what we're going to do is we're going to start in our ED at our, our bigger institution to get, you know, to get the kinks out. Um, we were also fortunate that we had to open up the same week our new ED, uh, which actually is the biggest in the state. It's 120-bed ED. And what we ended up doing is we actually carved out a part of that ED and called it an infusion center. And we actually made it such that, you know, the patients have much easier accessibility to get in and out, again, taking into, you know, into consideration um, infection control issues, as an example, and then from there, you know, we've got, we worked it out. So as you can see, as you're moving to the right, we opened up other infusion centers. Again, starting off in some of the small hospitals, EVs, but we have moved into having other parts of our network, other buildings that we've redesigned um, and, you know, staff to get to the point where we're at now, which we can, with slotted times, we can do about 130 um, uh, infusions a week. And again, if there would be a surge and again, knock on wood, you know, the numbers have been going down for, for quite a while. But if we'd have to surge again, we could actually surge into our EDs even beyond that if necessary. Okay, that brings us to our third and last polling question. So I would encourage folks, if you haven't already, to text REACHMD um, to 22333. Um, this question gets at what is the greatest challenge in your institution or for you personally in the use of neutralizing monoclonal antibodies? 
A, I'm concerned about the safety of these therapies. B, it's unclear which patients would benefit from these treatments. C, I'm not in a large medical center, so it's not clear how to connect patients with an infusion center. D, it's too late by the time they see patients, we're calling that 10-day window. Uh, e, I don't know how to get infusions covered, or none of the above, F. So we'll give folks a second um, to put in yep. there. Please submit your question, your responses, and then Dr. Block will discuss those with us. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there may be some late responses coming in, but what I'm seeing is three primary reasons for um, uh, hesitation or challenge in, in getting these uh, treatments to patients. Um, the largest proportion of patient of responders said that they are not in a large medical center, so it's not clear how to connect the patient with the infusion center. And then uh, other uh, significant barriers included, it's too late by the time I see patients, or I don't know how to get the infusions covered um, monetarily. So, Dr. Kyle, it seems that connect, the connection piece is a challenge. How do you find ways to help make these connections between your work in the infusion clinic and with clinicians who are identifying appropriate patients? Yeah, excellent question. And, you know, it partially goes back to a whole bunch of things we've talked about, but, you know, multidisciplinary is really important. Um, and as I said before, sort of about having something that, you know, for me, was killing two birds with one stone, but having that Sanford guy, having something as portable that our providers that are on the, you see more on the fringes of our network. But again, a lot of it goes into, you know, how you can bring them in in multi-pronged approach. And Dr. Block sort of talked about this too. And we did sort of the same thing. You know, we have the Epic, we have the report, it looks very similar to hers. It's kind of interesting how we all sort of get to the same place eventually. We mm-hmm. have subtle differences. And then we use that. Um, but I'll be honest with you, that, that, that approach actually um, took some time to get up and run. And so what we started with is, you know, providers in Epic actively, um, again, our network providers, um, putting in referrals. And, you know, and now we had a team that was like, we'd look at them and make sure they're accepted and then, you know, set them up. But then we also went again, what about those patients that are not actually our patients in our network, but are, you know, they're our community members. So whether that's the nursing homes or, or, you know, for example, a prison, that, you know, we want to treat them just as well. It's an equitability. And that's where those paper examples came into place. We use the three-pronged approach um, in, you know, in finding our patients as much as possible. So, you know, as I sort of described a little bit, you know, there is that equitability. You know, how do you look in, you can look at patients either progressively uh, or uh, prospectively, I'm sorry, or passively. And, um, you know, the equitability definitely takes time and it is a little bit slower and passively, of course, you can get things up and running. And I think in most institutions, it's going to be a little bit of both, depending on where in the situation um, that you're in and, you know, how far along you're in your project. And this one is just a snapshot of data. Um, I wanted to just give, a, you know, a little example of what we did. You know, I said before, we sort of took a stop, you know, look at the data, see what has happened. And, you know, we did, um, this is at the end of um, January, and we had 612 referrals in multiple avenues, again, electronically, actively looking, or paper. Um, and out of that, it ended up being 247 infusions. And then I think, just like anything else, you know, we we're talking about this 10 day window. Um, some didn't fall out because of that. We didn't get to them in time. You know, you may make so many times the phone number that's on record is not the one that they're actually on, or the phone's disconnected. So it took some time to find them. Or, you know, as Dr. Block has discussed, you know, patients might get worse. So there's been examples where when we did, we called them, we really recommended they come to the hospital and get evaluated and some got admitted in that case. Um, but of that experience, we took the stop, we took the pause and looked at what was happening. And you notice here that the risk factors of CKD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorders, diabetes, age greater than 65 minutes suppression, and that's the percent of the cohort at the time. And characteristically, we looked at the ages as well. You know, 60 to uh, greater than 90, you know, amazing. We actually wanted some of those 102. You know, so that's 70% of our group. Um, while not on here, it was about 50-50 men and women. And I've listed here Caucasian, more of a discussion point in that, you know, the greater Lehigh Valley is about, you know, two-thirds Caucasian. Okay, and when you take the bigger group of looking at it, then the question is like, what during what parts of our COVID outbreak has there been a higher incidence of other uh, ethnicities like the Hispanic population you know, getting COVID, you know, is there a reason why that says 87 and not 60, like 66? And we really did delve into that. You know, some of it was related to nursing homes and some of it was related to um, other things. We know that in the literature that there's certain uh, ethnic groups that 
they do not want to get the COVID vaccine. They don't want to get other certain um, other types of treatments. And it was the same thing here. We did see a little bit, maybe not statistically significant, but we did notice that there was patients that were declining it um, a little bit more in those ethnic groups than in um, the Caucasian groups. So it, it is, it's always worth taking a, a stop, a pause, and looking at what you can do better. Mr. Kyle, what is the cost of these medications and does insurance cover them? Yeah. So currently the products are free. You know, the government has bought them um, and they're available. Um, I guess I'm fortunate in Pennsylvania at this point, I can sort of order the one I want and how much I need. Uh, It looks like Dr. Block is so stuck to to some extent based off allocations from the state. But the thing you have to remind the patients is the fact that they still have, there is still going to be possibly some charges related to the infusion, wherever the infusion is. Um, you know, again, we took a little bit of time because we had to find ways of like electronically allocating spaces, slots that were equivalent to an infusion and not an ED visit, which is much more expensive. Mm. Um, now, knock on wood, I have not heard any feedback. And if, usually, if there's anything related to cost, we get we hear about it pretty quick. Um, I have not heard a problem in that relation. So it seems that um, payers are paying for the infusions. Now, I can't say anything about the newest you know combination, the bamlanivimab with the a test of a map. Um, we'll have to wait and see with that one. I don't know. Hmm. Um, Dr. Block, what have your experiences uh, been with treating COVID-19 patients? Um, can I please have the next slide? So I was so interested to hear about the Lehigh Valley experience because we took a slightly different tact. We recognized that these were all patients who were um, infected and infectious, and so we couldn't necessarily use our existing uh, infusion centers. And so we uh, built a freestanding infusion center out of a uh, existing parking garage. It does have heat and light, um, so it is not quite as basic as one might think. Um, But we have six chairs. Our infusion time is three hours each, and so we have four seatings or uh, the capacity to do 24 patients a day. And when we opened the center, we were really uh, expecting that that to book up quite quickly. And I think this slide shows very nicely that there is certainly sort of a startup period. So while we had the resources in place, you know, getting um, sort of the logistics down, identifying the patients, um, and, and getting it sort of accepted by the community and by the patients uh, really took a period of time. So I guess my advice would be don't expect to, um, you know, be maximally full uh, on day one. The other thing we recognized, um, and I, I alluded to this earlier, we actively screen for patients, so we'll, we'll um, identify patients and call them. Um, but we do uh, encourage our providers to also let them know, let us know about uh, eligible patients. Um, and this slide shows among uh, patients who received infusions who had a, a primary care provider at our institution, there were some real super users. So seven, per, seven providers accounted for uh, a third of all infused patients. And while we love their enthusiasm, we did worry a little bit that perhaps this was sort of skewing and that we want to make sure that there was uh, equal accessibility and uh, equitable distribution of um, medication to all. So I'm going to end this um, session before the questions um, with a couple last thoughts. Um, I think we uh, pointed out that what works at one site may not work at another. So uh, Mr. Kyle's approach may not be the perfect one for my site, uh, and neither of ours may be perfect for yours. So I really would encourage you to sort of think about what works in your community and your institution. Um, We've emphasized the fact that patients need to be treated within that 10-day window. So um, think uh, about whether how you are capturing patients will accomplish that. And then while we've really focused on the benefit to the individual patient, which is really important, I think what I haven't emphasized and would like to end with is that in a period of time where we're in a public health emergencies and our institutions are, are, you know, um, packed to the gills, our staff is stressed and overworked, it's really important, not just at the individual level, but again, at the community level to decrease hospitalizations. And so I think that's one of the um, unsung benefits of these treatments. Thank you. Thank you. So we're gonna take your questions now as we wrap up this session. And the first question is for Dr. Block. Is there a difference in morbidity and mortality outcomes between convalescent plasma monoclonal antibodies and manufactured monoclonal antibodies? And can convalescent plasma monoclonal antibodies and manufactured monoclonal antibodies be given simultaneously? It's quite a mouthful. So that's, those are really good questions, and you're getting at an important point, which is they're sort of doing the same thing, um, but the convalescent plasma is still in the experimental phase. Um, they're doing it on inpatients. I'm not aware of any studies looking at it on outpatients. There may be. Um, 
So it's again, a different population that's being targeted with these. Um, I think one of the advantages of the monoclonals is we have a much better uh, sense of how much active antibody is in these products. Whereas on the convalescent, there's incredible variability. Some people who are very sick may have very poor antibody production and that product then may not be as effective as somebody who had a really robust um, native immune response. And so I, I think that they both have a role. Um, I think that um, they have not been studied head to head. And I think that they, again, have slightly different niches in terms of their um, uses. Thank you. Next question is for Mr. Kyle. Not all hospital outpatient infusion centers are offering these infusions. Are there community resources for persons testing positive meeting criteria, but when the hospital they use isn't providing the service? Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. And again, I'm fortunate in the general geography of where I live on the East Coast, uh, be within an arm's reach of, an, of some kind of medical institution pretty quickly. Um, you know, it really goes back to that one slide we discussed about, you know, finding the places that it's being distributed to. Um, again, infusion centers are in general, you know, usually there's a lot of oncology patients going there. So um, most of those are not doing it for that reason alone. They're finding some other place that they can get patients in and out um, and keeping them away from those immunocompromised patient populations. Thank you. Um, this question is for Dr. Block, and then this will be the last question. Obviously, sooner is better, but what is the therapeutic window that monoclonal antibodies will be helpful? So I don't think that has been studied, so we don't have a clear answer. And actually, the studies didn't look at onset of symptoms. They looked at uh, time since testing, which sort of throws a little bit of a wrench in how we use them clinically. There's at least some thought that maybe in some of these incredibly susceptible populations who really are not able to mount their own immune response, that maybe there's sort of a tail end where giving these antibodies might be um, useful. But I think this could only be studied in a, um, in a uh, clinical trial because right now um, the EUA is very, very clear that 10 days is sort of that deadline. Um, so certainly if, if uh, an exception is made uh, for good reason, that could be considered. But in general, um, we just don't have any data about whether there's a, you know, a benefit to giving it after that 10-day period. All right. Thank you. Well, that's a great way to round out our discussion on neutralizing monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of COVID-19. I want to thank my colleagues, Dr. Block and Mr. Kyle, for helping us better understand the key role of physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, pharmacists in this challenging topic. It was great speaking with you both tonight. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too. You've been listening to a replay of a live broadcast about MAB treatment in COVID-19. This activity was provided in collaboration by Forefront Collaborative and AKH and supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME or CE credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.